Thank you, uh, worship team, Johnny, Emily, and David, band. It is a privilege to get to worship with you guys. And it's a privilege to be here in Bobby's stead and get to bring the word. I was looking back over the last few times I have preached over the last couple of years, and I realized uh, without doing it intentionally, this is, I believe, seven out of my last eight sermons have come out of Luke. Which shouldn't surprise me too much if you came to me today and you said, I, I want to engage with Scripture in a real way, and it's not a practice I'm uh, very comfortable with, but I, I want to get comfortable with it. Where should I begin? I would first say the Gospels. There is no better place than to start with the story of Jesus. And if you pressed further, I would say Luke. Luke is a commissioned man who is writing a, a book of, of history on behalf of a wealthy man named Theophilus. We know very little about him, but it seems as though he might have been interested about this small group of people that are not so small anymore, who followed an obscure man and is now exploding across the area, and he's interested. I appreciate the way that Luke writes. And so today again, we'll be in Luke chapter 10. We'll be looking at a passage that I suspect for many of you is going to be very familiar. Now, I hesitate to say that because if it's not familiar to you, I would hate for you to feel like you were behind. And I'm going to make an argument that you may have a leg up on those of us who are very familiar with this text. Those of us that are familiar, I have a small word of caution. It's easy to approach texts like this and passages like this that we could nearly recite from memory and go, I've got this one down. This is children's Sunday school. I've heard it a hundred times. I know what he's going to say, and so I can check out. I would uh, make the argument there that maybe it's all the more reason we take this particular passage seriously. Luke chapter 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan. So far in the chapter, Jesus has sent out the 70 two by two, giving them the command to take nothing with you. Rely on the hospitality of people who are receptive to the gospel. If you come to a place that is not receptive, leave that place, uh, dust the dirt off your feet and move on. They come back and they say, Jesus, you will never believe what we were able to do. And Jesus says, and this will be a sermon I preach one day from this pulpit. Jesus says, yep, it's pretty cool what you did. But what's even cooler is that the God of the universe, the creator of all things seen and unseen, knows your name and it's recorded in the book of life. He begins to have a private discussion with the disciples, and then some indeterminate time later, we are introduced to this lawyer. I appreciate the NLT that Emily read, uh, an expert on religious law. When we hear lawyer, you may think, what kind of lawyer? We've got all sorts of categories, and you can be a a lawyer that focuses on this very niche thing, or one maybe uh, that focuses a bit more generally, but you're categorized in one way or another. There was really only one type of lawyer when Scripture talks about a lawyer, and that is an expert on the Mosaic law. 
what we refer to now as the Pentateuch, the first five books in our Old Testament. And a lawyer approaches Jesus, and he wants to test him. Motive, we don't know. Maybe he was just nefarious, mean, and thought maybe he could get one over on Jesus. Maybe he's just a skeptic. Either way, I do think you and I ought to have a bit more compassion than is natural because we've got 2,000 years of hindsight. We have observed, although indirectly, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the birth of the church, the explosion of the church, and the preservation of the church. It's a little easier for us to go shame on them for not getting it. Maybe a bit more compassion. But he's going to test him either way, and this we're wildly familiar with. Ask a question. Hope you can get the sound bite you're looking for. It doesn't matter if it's five words in the midst of a hundred. As long as you get the five that you can now write your headline, you got them. So this man asks a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus isn't going to play this game. Jesus isn't going to be duped. He's not going to gotcha with Jesus here. Jesus says, well, you tell me what the law says. You're an expert. And then I would argue not necessarily for the purpose of, but for our purposes, it's obvious he is an expert. He pulls two passages out of the Mosaic law in two different texts, one from Deuteronomy 6, one from Leviticus 19. And he says, just like Jesus says, well, there's two things that can kind of sum up the law and how I can inherit eternal life. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Deuteronomy 6, 5, following the Shema. And Leviticus 19, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, there you have it. You got all the answer you need. Do this and you'll live. I think it's dangerous to start picking parts of wor- picking words apart in the Greek and, and start showing. Well, what it really means is, we talked about this a few months ago, Occam's razor, right? The simplest solution is probably the right one. But I do think it's worth noting here. Because it might have been obvious for a Greek speaker, and it wasn't obvious to me until I studied this. What, what he asked is, what can I do to inherit Active verb. What do I have to do to get the thing that I want? This is the question he's asking. It's the question we ask all the time. It starts in school. What do I have to do to get an A? Now, I was in fourth grade. I got a B. Never had a B before. I cried. I called my mom at work, and I said, I got a B, anticipating the worst, and she said the two worst words she could ever said to me, it's okay. So then my question became, what do I have to do to get a B? There were classes, Hebrew seminary, there were classes, what do I have to do to not have to take this class again? And you finish school, and the question becomes, what do I have to do to retire the way I want. 
or maybe more myopic, what do I have to do to get to the weekend? You get older and the question becomes a little scarier. What do I have to do to not have more life than money? But we're constantly walking ourselves through these questions. And for the most part, if we're really, really honest, and we want to be true to ourselves, what we're really saying, what is the bare minimum I've got to do to get the thing that I want? I majored in something that didn't do formulas. I haven't taken a math class since my junior year of high school. We didn't do multiple choice. It was lots of writing. Everybody's first question when we get to syllabus, how long does it have to be? used to do it in pages, which was nice, because if you take all your periods, high schoolers take note, if you change all your periods to size 16, and you just move that margin a little bit, you can really stretch that page count out. Then they start doing word counts, and now I've got to talk about how it's very, very, very good that that thing did indeed absolutely for sure happen. But even then, the question I'm really asking in my classmates too, not just me, it's you two, the question we're really asking is, What's the bare minimum I've got to do to get the thing I want? And it would be naive for us to think that doesn't seep into our spiritual lives, that we begin, if we're not careful, going, okay, what's the bare minimum I've got to do to get to heaven? That's the thing we all want. And most of us, in our worst days, can be convinced that the minimum you've got to do is a schedule change. Be here when the doors are open. Some of you go, no, 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 it's more than that. You've got to give. You go, more, it's more than that. You've got to serve. And we, we start playing this game, but even then we're trying to meet the minimum standard. I would argue God's not real impressed by your Sunday morning attendance if the entire other 166 hours of your week are spent pursuing your own ends. I would argue, although I'd keep giving, but I would argue he's not really impressed with your 10% if the other 90% you say, that's mine. It's not just a... Schedule change, it's not just, that's, that's minimum standards. That's what this guy's asking. But then Jesus answers, not in active, but in a middle verb, that yes, there is some responsibility on you, but it's also what happens to you. It's almost as if, I don't rhyme very often, so write this down. It's almost as if Jesus is more interested in your transformation than your destination. Right? Some of us have spent our entire Christian lives solely focused on our eternal destination. I want you to know this morning at 15, we sang when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be, and it sure will. Heaven and hell are promised in Scripture, like it or not. But so much more time is spent not talking about what heaven will be like, but what's expected of you in the meantime. That changes everything for this guy. Started as a gotcha. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle he went, ah, didn't get him. 
And then it hit him that I was asking about what happens after I die and then Jesus is answering what has to happen until then. And it seems like maybe he's haunted by that. You've been haunted by conviction before, I'm sure. Reading scripture, personal devotion time, and a Bible study, maybe sitting in this room, lyrics to a song or words in a sermon. And it occurs to you, I'm going to, I'm going to have to deal with this or it's going to haunt me until I do. I want to be very clear. I do not believe shame and guilt are of the Lord. I do believe conviction is, and they're, they're really close neighbors. But here's the difference. Shame and guilt will put a wedge between you and the Lord, and conviction will draw you nearer. You're trying to figure out which one it is. But I suspect we've all been haunted by conviction and go, oh, I'm going to. I'm not going to be able to sleep until I I wrestle with this a bit more. And we're stuck with two resolutions. One is life change. Again, not schedule change. Not I I did give 6%. I'm going to go up to 10. I'm going to hit it. I do 10. I'm going to do over. I'm going to go 15% of my salary. It's going to go to the church. It's not that. It's everything. You see, if if he is Lord, if he is king, then every single thing now has to be reoriented to him. I had a pastor, I had a a ton of respect for this pastor, but he used to talk about that he believed you could accept Christ as your Savior, but not yet as your Lord. I don't think that's possible. Bobby's my boss here. I can choose to not acknowledge that. That doesn't make Bobby not my boss. It just makes me a bad employee. You can choose not to acknowledge Christ as Lord and only as Savior. That just makes you a poor reflection of your Lord and Savior. But if he is Lord, then now every single thing has to be reoriented. And that's hard work. It requires discipline at times A lot of the times, it requires me to wrestle with something that I had identified myself with, and now my identity is being shattered by who Jesus says I am. That's not easy work. That's heart surgery. That's serious business that he's called us to attend to, but that's not the only option. The other option is go, okay, God. I get it. I shouldn't be living this way. I I shouldn't be apathetic. I shouldn't be gossiping. I shouldn't be uh, lusting. I shouldn't be whatever. I, I, I get it. Okay, but if you think about it, what I'm actually doing is this. Or what we're really good at. Okay, God, I know, not ideal. It's not great, but think about where I was. Or, or God, okay, you got me. I shouldn't live this way, but have you seen her? He's way worse. I'm not there. I got bad news for you guys. That's the wrong way, and it's easy. It is so easy to justify it. And you know, it's really scary. The Bible's long enough, you can even find a verse. You go, ah, but God, didn't you say? Yeah, I know I'm not living right, but didn't you say it's not works anyways? It's faith, and I am faithful. 
We'll see what the lawyer picked. But wanting to justify himself, oh boy, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, maybe you had a teacher that well-meaningly told you at some point there's no such thing as a dumb question. That's a dumb question. Expert in the law? You don't know what the word neighbor means? There's a, a viral video going around right now of a pseudo-intellectual that people have given too much esteem, and he's asked the question, uh, did it happen? And he goes on a diatribe. Well, you, if you're going to answer that, we have to go back to what do you mean by happen? No, you don't. Everyone knows what the word happen means. What do you, what do you mean, who is my neighbor? And you go, well, it's not entirely obvious. It is, I promise. Because here's the deal. The word neighbor, when he says, who is my neighbor, it's almost identical to the adverb root of the same word that means nearby. Okay, done. Neighbor means nearby. But this is an expert in the law. He's just combined Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. In Leviticus 19, he can be on the same spot in his scroll and see, love your neighbor as yourself and receive the alien as one of your own. He doesn't have to roll the scroll any farther. Just 10 lines down. An expert of the law doesn't know that? Yeah, he does. And I don't know about you, but if neighbor means those that are nearby and those that are not, that covers just about everybody. If I have to include my people and not my people, that's, that's near 100%. Only one you're missing is me. So I can't get quite up. That's pretty darn close to 100%. Who is my neighbor? That's a dumb question. But Jesus is nicer than I am. And so he doesn't say, sir, I don't know if your teacher told you one day there's no such thing as a dumb question. That's a dumb question. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Everybody in the room around Jesus, everybody in the crowd knows exactly what he's talking about. Either they're wealthy enough to know, yeah, I, I paid bodyguards to go with me on that trip. That's a scary spot. Or the poor ones go, yeah, I hold my breath every time I get right there, hoping I look poor enough that they don't want to rob me. Yep, I remember that little, that little narrow spot. You're almost there, but it gets, gets real tight and real rocky. You got to slow down, and you can't really see either side. I get real vigilant. Everybody in the crowd knows exactly what he's talking about. Maybe even get a little tense just thinking about it. Robbed, beaten, for many of these, maybe their worst fear on that trip at least. And left for dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Boom, I know the story. If you're listening to Jesus the first time, you go, that's not a chance, Jesus. That's a miracle of the Lord right there. It blows me away when people tell me a story and they go, as luck would have it. Luck didn't have it. The Lord did. I suspect many people in this room when, oh, yes, I was really worried about that guy. I get nervous. What's going to happen if I am beaten and laid dead? I hope by chance a priest walks by. And he passed by him on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. When he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. And then came a Samaritan. There is nobody an ancient Near Eastern Jew hates more than a Samaritan. 
You get to the border of Samaria and you need to get to the other side. You got two options, seven miles across, over 20 miles around. Which one do you take? Every Jew takes the same route, 20 miles around. I didn't want to touch the dirt of Samaria when they walked through. By now you're going, okay, well, the people I thought were going to rescue him didn't, but I know this guy's not coming through. No way Jesus uses him as the object of the story. But a Samaritan, well, Traveling, came near him, saw him, was moved with pity. Went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on him, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, came to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you. Whatever more you spend. Jesus is a good storyteller. You want to make a point out of somebody? Priest and the Levite, you one verb each, passed on by. Boy, the Samaritan saw him, was moved by it, cared for him, poured oil and wine on him. A little ironic here. I bet the priest and Levite also poured oil and wine that week in religious rituals. You know which pouring was more holy to God? Wasn't the one done at the altar. Picks him up, puts him on his donkey. Takes him into the inn. Pays while he's there. Pays a little extra. Promises to pay more after that if need be. That's a lot of verbs. Some of us have gotten the Jesus truth down. But the Jesus way expects a lot more than that. Eugene Peterson wrote the message, but he also wrote a book called The Jesus Way. He says it this way, We cannot skip the way of Jesus in our hurry to get to the truth of Jesus as he is worshipped and proclaimed. The way of Jesus is the way that we practice and come to understand the truth of Jesus. Living Jesus in our homes and workplaces with our friends and families. Church family. The truth of Jesus is important. But the way to truly understand. The truth of Jesus. Is to live out. The way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus isn't found in a classroom. You could argue it's found in this room because Jesus gathered with other believers. But the way of Jesus, if it does not leave those double doors, it isn't the way of Jesus. It's the way of religion that's seeking to meet the minimum standards. The way of Jesus Expects so much more from us. And Jesus asks him, He says, Okay, you've heard the story. Who was the neighbor? I think you almost hear him gag as he has to say Samaritan. So he goes, You know what? Cut it. Uh, The one who showed mercy. He's the one that lived out the Jesus way. 
He wasn't hurried to get somewhere more important. There's nothing more important than those who are hurting to Jesus. Anybody who can be described like a shepherd who leaves 99 to search for the one, there is nothing more important to that man than those who are hurting. But it's not a knock on the door and hand them a track and ask them if they died tonight, do they know where they're going, and then knock on the next door to do it again. It's care. It's compassion. It's concern. It's long-term. It's embodied. It's personal. Paul says to the church of Thessalonica, I was eager not just to give you the gospel, but my very self. Everything that makes me who I am was on the table to point you to a better way. I love the way the Hebrew author, the more excellent ministry, can almost see it. He, cloud nine, I got the question. It's going to get him. And he starts answering and goes, well, that didn't work. And then he keeps answering. And he goes, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to deal with this. I can justify it. I'm telling you guys, the, the easy way is the wrong way. The hard work of going, okay, Jesus, you're king. You're over everything. I turn it over to you. Reorient my will. Reorient my desires. Reorient my passion. Reorient my love in a way that better reflects who you are. And Jesus gave us a pretty good example. You think people are beneath you and don't want to serve those people? Well, Jesus washed the feet. You think your, your actions are, are good enough to get you in? Well, Jesus called the Pharisees whitewash tombs. You think it's just between you and God and it doesn't matter the way you behave? Jesus says if your deeds are not as good as the Pharisees, you have no part in me. You think you, you don't need to be cleansed because maybe you've been a pretty good kid your whole life or really you hadn't done really bad stuff, so I, I don't really know that I need Jesus. When he's washing their feet, Peter says, hey, don't, don't wash mine. I will not let you subject yourself to that. He says, if I don't do this, you have no part in me. So then Jesus, or Peter being Peter says, okay, give me a bath. And he says, no, dummy, I'll wash your feet. It's fine. Right? But you think you don't need him? I promise you need him. If you go, yeah, but, but they've done a lot to me. This song we just sang, yeah kill you? I don't know what's worse. Like that seems like top of the 
top of the heap. He says, our response will be blessing. Curse me? You go, yeah, yeah, but Evan, you don't understand how bad they've been to me. Jesus died taking on every bit of pain and suffering that you and I ought to have received and took it upon himself, knowing, because he said so, that the vast majority of people reject him and his message. And that only a small number will embrace this Jesus way. And he died for them too. Disowned by one of his twelve. Even if you can find every other justification for the way you're living, the cross wipes it all out. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. There is no greater act of mercy than giving of yourself on behalf of someone else, and Jesus would say, who has no way to repay you. This is not a, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. This is not a, I'm going to be kind to this person because I can ride their coattails to the top. This is only, Jesus says, the, the, the greatest display of love is found in self-sacrifice. He even says elsewhere, if you get your reward here, then you already got your reward. You don't want to be rewarded here. He says, that's what love is. That's what showing mercy is. That's the, the Jesus way. Jesus could have just as well asked, which one of these men lived like Jesus? Which one of these men most exemplified a life spent pursuing God? Man, that would have hurt the lawyer to have to say out loud. Which one of these men embodied the Jesus way? The one who showed mercy. The one who loved his neighbor. And then Jesus says to me and says to you, go and do likewise. We are, till Jesus chooses a different way, we are the primary conduit of God's love to this world, the local church. That's a high bar. We are, until Jesus chooses another way, and at least according to Scripture, it looks like we're stuck with this one. We are, as those who claim Christ's name, we are the primary conduit of God's love to this world. This go and do likewise is not, if you want that kind of next level of Christianity, if you want to, if you want to take a step up, you, you got heaven, but now you want to go for the second tier of membership, it's not that. This is base level. This is foundational to what it means to be a Christ follower is to follow Christ and go and do likewise. It will not be easy. 
it will not be easy. But according to Scripture, it'll be worth it. Let's pray. God, you are good, and you're for our good. Forgive us when we take this beautiful truth for granted. God, I pray that you would do something in and through the lives of this church, the people in this room as we leave this room, in their homes, in their workplaces, in their hearts. Do something that we can't take credit for. God, I pray that you would do something so big in this city, through this people, that our only explanation would simply be God did that. It's your name I pray.